Psychonauts, travelers, scientists, and researchers. Head on over to maps.org to sign up for the Maps e-newsletter and to sign up for the Psychedelic Science webinar series, which is taking place October 17th through December 5th. Seven sessions, 19 speakers. It's going to be fantastic. Sign up now. Welcome to the podcast, episode 32 of the MAPS podcast. This is Zach Leary. I am your host. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and this is our podcast. So happy that you are here. On this episode of the podcast, we have Dr. Cole Marta and Shannon Claire Carlin together, who were, they were on a panel that I moderated at an event called the Sci Fire event in the San Fernando Valley back in the summer. And it took me a while to release the content, mainly because the quality of the audio, there was a lot of crowd noise going on. So uh, it, it, it kind of took away from, uh, from the audio quality. But I went back, revisited it, uh, EQ'd it uh, quite a bit. And I think it uh, sounds pretty good. And the content is, is great. Of course, Dr. Cole and Shannon are fantastic minds and uh, brilliant therapists who are doing great work. So they brought a lot of great information into this discussion. So I thought I'd put it out. Still relevant, still good stuff. And we'll talk uh, in a minute specifically about uh, what we talked about in the panel. Yeah, good stuff. But as it says in the bumper of this podcast, and we talked about it in the last episode, going on right now is the Psychedelic Science Webinar Series. It's on right now and goes through December 5th, featuring seven sessions and 19 speakers. And you can still sign up for it, even though it has already technically begun. Um, you can buy an individual program or you can buy a pass for uh, all seven of the series, but go to maps.org and just click on the big banner to see what the program is. There's um, just all sorts of great stuff. Um, diversity, inclusion, and psychedelic medicine, psychedelic sex and gender. It's time for an open conversation. How to become a legal MDMA therapist with Shannon Claire Carlin, who is on this episode of the podcast. All sorts of great stuff. And uh, recently, I think I mentioned that uh, a study was recently completed. Um, I'm going to bring up the white paper for it. Uh, Reduction in social anxiety after MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with autistic adults. Uh, The press release came out on September 28th. And I just wanted to read a couple, uh, a couple little highlights from the press release. The research was conducted by Dr. Charles Grobe and Alicia Danforth. Uh, the study found reductions in the social anxiety that were significantly greater 
for participants who received MDMA-assisted psychotherapy than for those who received placebo. On average, participants in the placebo group experienced reductions of 19.3 points on the Leibowitz social anxiety scale compared to 44.1 points reductions in the MDMA group. Um, so very, very cool stuff. And Dr. Grobe noted what was particularly notable for many of the participants after treatment was their increased self-confidence when interacting in social settings, an endeavor that in the past they had experienced as overwhelming. So again, go to maps.org to read the press release and the white paper on the study. Uh, when I really dug into uh, more of the results, I, I just found it uh, uh, extremely um, intriguing because, uh, as we all know, the rise in autism amongst uh, uh, well kids being born, but uh, Americans in general is it's uh, kind of at an all time high. So this is this is great work. The question is from a stage magician, and the question is, what is? the nature of magic or what is magic or the wonder that it invokes there are two theories i mean magic is not a trivial issue at all uh, there are two theories about how the world works and each one depends on a fundamental assumption about what the world is there's the scientific theory which says the world is tiny packets of matter squealing along through empty space at close to the speed of light and subject to a certain set of interlocking laws. That's what science tells us the world is. Another theory is, and, and to my mind, a much more appealing and even intuitively correct theory is the world is language. The world is made of language. We can say that the world is composed of little demons doing calisthenics, each one the size of a pissant's eyebrow. Or we can say the world is made out of wave mechanical packets of matter flying along at the speed of light. But notice that what we get each time is words. Our, our, our model of what the world is, is made of words, and the world is composed of description. Now, in the era before science, scientists like to say people were more epistemologically naive. What they mean by that is they didn't have a clear understanding of the division between the inside and the outside, between what we imagine and what actually is. But if you live long enough, I think you discover what we imagine and what actually is are very close to the same thing. That's a little bit from Terence McKenna, of course, who does a great job at just opposing the scientific method versus the more cosmic mystical method as expressed through language. I just love that clip. And 
thought it was somewhat appropriate. I guess it's always contextually appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> anyway, let's get into the podcast with Dr. Cole Marta and Shannon Claire Carlin. I think, uh, well, if you don't know who they are, Dr. Marta is the principal investigator at the LA site in the phase three trial of MDMA treatment for PTSD. And Shannon received her master's degree in integral counseling psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. And she has been doing MDMA therapy uh, as uh, the training program manager for MAPS and is uh, also largely responsible for the Zendo project, doing so much cool stuff. So I hope you enjoy this panel. There is some audience noise kind of going on in the back, and it was, uh, it was kind of a interesting, um, but very festive and a spontaneous place to do a panel on psychedelic research, the status of the phase three clinical trials, the Zendo project, and so much more. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Cole Marta and Shannon Claire Carlin. Carlin. All right. I'm Zach Leary. This is Dr. Cole Marta and Shannon Claire Carlin. Let's give them a round of applause. And when I say, for those of you, uh, this is a live taping of the MAPS podcast, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So when I say, in a second, welcome to the podcast, everybody cheer, okay? Everybody get that? Okay, cool. You guys are nodding. All right. Welcome to a live episode of the MAPS Podcast. All right. I like it. We're super excited to be here at the, the SciFest. Cole, good to see you. Shannon, good to see you. So, the way that this works, we're basically going to have a discussion about psychedelics, about MDMA about science, about consciousness, about research, about cognitive liberty, about spirituality, um, about clinical trials, about the government, about history. We're gonna do all of that in 50 minutes, okay? <laughs> We're gonna talk about the meaning of life in 50 minutes. But really, these guys are on the front lines of pioneering groundbreaking research with MDMA and other, uh, psychoanalytic therapeutic agents. Does everybody know what MAPS is? Right? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. Does everybody know what the Zendo project is? Okay, cool. Awesome. Really quickly, even though a lot of you said yes, we're going to start off with what is the Zendo project? I want one of you guys to take this because this is so, so, so important for me. Like, I grew up uh, as a deadhead in the 80s and 90s, and if the Zendo project was around in the Grateful Dead parking lot in the 80s and 90s, it would be a radically different time era, and a lot of things would have gone down differently. So tell me what the Zendo project is. Let's start, start off there. So the Zendo project is a project of MAPS, psychedelic harm reduction, where we provide peer-to-peer -peer support by counseling and sitting and providing a safe space. There's actually a Zendo space here in the 
in the back area over there. And Zendo is all about protecting our community. And if people are going to have psychedelic experiences, we have to be open to all of what that experience could be. And sometimes we need a friend, or sometimes we need a glass of water, or a safe place to lie down. And that's what we aim for the Zendo to be. Yeah, I really feel, hello, can we lift my voice? Yeah. I really feel like, wow. Wow. Okay. I really feel like the Zendo project, it really is helping to shape and change the perception of what challenging trips are, can be, and where they, you know, possibly can end and sort of erase, you know, in our world, the idea of a challenging trip is very different than to what it is in the outside world. But, you know, there is so much misconceptions and so much misunderstandings about what a challenging trip, a.k.a. a bad trip, is. And I really think the Zendo Project is changing the landscape on that. Um, but primarily, let's not derail and get into that just yet. You guys are on the front lines of MDMA research with MAPS, working with patients directly, working with therapists and the training program that Shannon, that you work with. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in the MAPS community about the phase three clinical trials, the phase three clinical trials. What are the, the phase three clinical trials and where are we at this moment in time? Yeah, so um, when the when any drug or any treatment is being proposed as like a medical treatment in the United States, it has to be approved by the FDA, um, the Food and Drug Administration. And depending on the field of medicine that uh, treatment is being investigated within, uh, there's a stepwise process to proving that uh, that treatment is safe and effective. So. The phase one studies are um, studies that are done to prove that something, some medicine or treatment is safe. Uh, phase two studies are studies where they actually give this medicine to people who are suffering from the condition that you believe the medicine's gonna help for. In this case, MDMA, assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. So the phase two studies uh, started in the 2000 aughts and uh, there have been a handful that have finished now and had extremely promising data. The final step in the FDA approval process is the phase three studies. So after it's been shown to be safe and effective to groups of uh, participants and studies in like blind, double blind placebo controlled trials, uh, they move on to phase three which is typically a much larger study involving multiple locations. So it'll be, instead of 20 participants at one location, it'll be 20 to 30 participants at 15 locations. Uh, the idea being that you wanna gather as much safety data as you can uh, to make sure that you're identifying even really rare safety issues, uh, as well as showing that you can reproduce those uh, positive results that you saw in the earlier studies. Uh, the really exciting thing is that that's the last step and that's where we are now with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. The last step before. 
the, the last step before uh, FDA approval of the treatment as an actual medical treatment that would be available in the United States. So what does success look what does success look like with the phase three trial? What is it that makes, some, makes a phase three clinical trial successful? Statistical significance, yeah. So phase three being a larger population size, you can show that the positive statistics we've been getting in smaller phase two trials hold up so that they have more statistical significance in a bigger group, yeah. And st statistical significance, like what's really interesting about this to me is that we are fusing two different cultures together. I know, you know, you guys are scientists and have done, you know, a lot of own, your own personal work in your life to get to where you are to be able to do this. But there really are two cultures kind of combining here. So when I hear about the FDA and phase three clinical trials, you know, you do, I do think of the government. I do think of something perhaps that can be overly regulated. I think of something that, uh, I mean, obviously the safety and the efficacy and the purity and all of these things are very, very, very important. But the reason I bring that up is do you think that the FDA has a good understanding on what you're trying to do here? Um, yeah, I guess uh, as far as the goal of trying to uh, bring MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD into the Western medical paradigm, uh, I think that they understand that that's, that that's what we are trying to do here. It is, it is definitely unique for them. Um, the, the fact that it's a, it's not just a drug, right? Like most most of what the FDA is asked to review is a chemical, and uh, it's pretty easy to do to design and conceptualize those studies. You give the chemical to this group, you don't give it to this group, and see if you know they improve after X amount of time. Uh, what is definitely unique, and I think this probably comes from the influence of both cultures. Um, is the uh, the psychotherapy component like the FDA is not used to uh, dealing with psychotherapy like they don't they don't they don't have any uh, like they're just used to the effects of the actual compound right right, right. Okay. like they're the food and drug administration so their right. their role is making sure that food and drugs are safe as right. safe as you know can be can be shown can be tested for um, so so in that way I think it's it's definitely outside of the the comfort zone or outside of the normal zone of the FDA to be being asked to take a look at a protocol or a treatment that isn't just a drug right right so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting paradigm because, again, what does success look like? And when you're specifically treating PTSD, both of you, like Shannon, I'm curious, what, what do you think? When, if you're using MDMA for the treatment of PTSD specifically, what is it that you're looking to see in the patient as a mechanism of improvement? Yeah, so we have all of these study measures and yep. they're 
field standards, so they're measures that have been developed and established and accepted, mm. accepted by the field. And the primary outcome that we use in the PTSD studies is the CAP score, clinician-administered PTSD scale. So we have about 30 measures, but that's the primary one, and that mm. tells us the severity of somebody's PTSD. Okay. And that's what we track um, throughout the study after um, at different periods throughout the study. And the majority of um, the patients who are in these clinical trials, they have PTSD from what source? What's their source of trauma? So A lot of veterans, I know, but what else? Yeah, the Mitthofers in Charleston did a study um, in the early 2000s with 19 female survivors from childhood sexual abuse. And then they did a study after that with veterans, firefighters, and police officers. And the effects were equally successful, which told us that this same protocol that we use for both populations could be equally effective for them, regardless of the source of the PTSD. So now we don't have a condition of what has to cause the source of PTSD, which can be caused by many things in addition to sexual abuse and military combat. So walk us through what one of these sessions looks like. Because you know, I've, I've done guided sessions, I mean myself, as a as a traveler, <laughs> you know, and as a patient and as, as someone who wants to learn about their own, you know, their own makeup and what makes them themselves. But walk us through a session here because so, mu so many of us associate psychedelics and MDMA especially with, um, you know, perhaps a more social atmosphere, you know, maybe someplace like this or you're doing it with like a lover at home kind of you know, under a blanket with music queued up. So, so what's it look like? Where do you go? What's the room like? What's the relationship with the actual, with, with the, the therapist in the room? Is there music involved? Are there blankets involved? How, how does it look? Mm -hmm. It looks kind of like your living room. <laughs> okay. And so we have many different sites and we try to emulate that comfortable feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's a funny thing when we're recruiting new sites and they're, universities or mental health clinics and they're thinking you want us to have a futon that reclines and pillows <laughs> and nice art on the walls um, music is very important yeah so it's, it's not a, a sterile white room no okay. hopefully not um, and if it is we redecorate it <laughs> it's an eight-hour therapy session there's two therapists so Cole and I are co-therapists at our site in North Hollywood during the eight hours, we start with the first dosing right around 10 a.m. And throughout the course of the eight hours, there can be some very interactive periods and some very non-interactive periods with the therapists. And we call that going inward. So that's encouraging a study participant to have moments that they can have an internal experience, kind of a meditative state or a beginner's mind to see what organically comes out. So, with something that might organically come out, will you just let them kind of go for a little bit and just see, or, I mean, or are you trying to steer them in a certain direction? Do you have questions that you're asking them? Uh, if, yeah, what comes up for them? Yeah, great question. So, uh, the, one of the core tenets of this particular psychotherapy model is a, is a non-directive approach. Mm. So, um, anything goes uh, within safety, you know, like no jumping out of windows or running down the street or anything, but uh, no setting fires. Yeah.
Okay. So, unpacking the process just a little bit, and I've always really been really, really curious about this. If you, let's just create the use case of, say, a veteran who's had some pretty severe war trauma. They've been on the battlefield, whatever, maybe they've had to confront the, you know, the real, you know, psychic pain of actually taking somebody's life, the trauma that that's causing them, or the injuries, whatever the case may be. How are the dots connected? How is it that MDMA can sort of produce an experience for them to look at their own life and their own trauma, which sort of lets it go? How are the dots connected that actually equate to healing? There's a lot of different layers of what is happening there, and I'm, I'm not a neurochemist, but um, we're starting to do fMRI studies, and so we're learning that one thing that's happening in the brain is the amygdala, the fear response center, is yeah. decreasing in activity. So people can revisit their traumatic memories without feeling as if the trauma was happening in real time, which is a common symptom of PTSD. As if the trauma were happening in real time. Oh, okay. So they're able to, in some ways, simultaneously be present with the traumatic memories yep. in a way that feels safe and be in the present moment and connected to their body. And we work a lot with the sensations of the body, um, which oftentimes people with PTSD are disconnected from. They shut it down, right? And it helps them. Interesting, interesting. Do they find, um, if you guys are kind of co-leading a session, do you, uh, do you find that they bond with you guys? Definitely. <laughs> so I know everybody I've ever done MDMA with, who, no matter who it is, it's pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely moments of, um, I guess I feel a bit bashful sometimes. Right. Um, and that's, that is part of the healing process, too, sure. is that MDMA can be a tool in establishing the therapeutic alliance, which is something any therapist would, would establish with their client. But spending, I mean, even I, I sometimes think about this, setting aside the medicine for a second, just having two people in the room for eight hours, and all they want to do is support you. I mean, yeah, how often do we ever get that? That's, yeah, that I is do. amazing. Right. What, what venue in the world do you often get that? Right. That's a, it's amazing. Yeah. And just a word about Therapeutic Alliance. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's something I think is actually uh, probably playing a huge part in the healing process in ways that are really complicated and difficult to untangle. But uh, study after study in uh, psychotherapy um, has shown that the number one predictor of outcome, even more important than the like level of training of the therapist or mastery of a psychotherapeutic technique or the style of psychotherapy that they use, is the therapeutic alliance that exists between the, the patient and the provider. So uh, MDMA is like, it's like a cheat, it's like a game genie from Nintendo or some, some sort of like video game cheat code where uh, we get the like, you know, amazing benefit of that, what MDMA does to, you know, it basically it's like six months to years of uh, developing a trusting relationship all packaged in like a 45 minute delivery system. And what's, um, 
I mean, can you talk a little bit about the statistics yet? Is it is it too early to talk about like I mean, since you mentioned that earlier, I'm just curious. Yeah, we have some statistics from phase two. Um, I can do my best to be within one or two percentage of what's accurate. Um, yeah. The after all of the phase two trials were done and yeah. we compiled all of the trial data that we had, we had an average CAPS, so again, that PTSD score, um, we had an average CAPS reduction of 68%. Oh. Um, That's pretty great, yeah. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and one, one way of interpreting that is that uh, about two thirds of the people no longer really had a PTSD anymore. Um, on average, for the veteran study, people going to work with the Mitthoffers, they had had PTSD for an average of 19 years. And most people came in with medication lists um, that were pages long, treatments they had tried wow. and medications that hadn't worked for them. And this just, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the training program for a second, kind of look at the other side. I understand the patients and, you know, who, who's who this, this work can be beneficial for. But for people who want to get into this field, who want to get involved in the training program, because, you know, if you kind of look down the road a little bit, you know, however many years it is, five, 10 years, even less even, uh, you know, once the phase three trials are complete and this drug is available as a psychoactive compound through your psychiatrist, I suspect that there will be a whole new field of psychiatry and specialized therapy, just like there are MFTs, just like there are child therapy, just like, yeah, right? So for people who want to get into this, and I know you lead the training program, where does one start? What kind of people come to you looking to do it? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to think of a whole new field being born that, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty young clinician still, and to think, I feel really grateful to come alive at this time where so many of my elders and mentors have done decades of work to allow me to have a viable career path um, in this field. So in the training program um, at MAPS, we have... Yeah, we, we have many different people come from different backgrounds. So Cole's a psychiatrist, I'm a psychotherapist, and we pair people up in co-therapy pairs, and they go through our five-part training program, and they learn about the chemistry of MDMA and the effects that it has. They learn about the protocol and all the different visits. The MDMA visits are probably the most fun, but we have a lot <laughs> of other visits that we do, a sure. lot of study measures and paperwork and the screening process. Um, so they learn about all of that. And then they come to a residential week retreat where we do training with the Mitthoffers and Marcella Otillero, and they present their case studies that they've worked with. Um, these supervisors have been doing MDMA clinical trials for 20 years. So they have a lot of experience to share with us. And then we do experiential training where people do role plays and holotropic breath work. And we even have an FDA approved trial where we can allow our researchers to come to some of our study sites and receive the protocol, the MDMA therapy themselves as part of their training, which is pretty novel, yeah. Yeah, very, very novel. And like, I, I, I would just, a logical 
assumption or conclusion would be like when somebody is in getting their MFT or their PhD or studying psychotherapy, that this will be a completely new valid and finally justified specialized field, right? That's the idea? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of conversations in the field about what psychedelic psychotherapy licensure or certification right. would be like, um, insurance coverage and that's very much topics we're working on, but they're very new. And also like facilities, like because you know, uh, right now, I mean, the idea is that your psychiatrist will prescribe it for you and you do it under their guidance, right? Right, so I'm kind of like picturing like these amazing facilities, kind of like this place with cool like, you know, little rooms and couches and just places that you can actually legally go to do a licensed therapeutic trip, right? Yeah, and I kind of want to turn it to Cole because uh, I think you've been preparing for a very long time to be in this field, <laughs> and uh, psychiatrists will always need to be a part of this treatment because of the medicine aspect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that uh, that vision of that that place has been certainly a, a dream for a very long time, and um, and it is exciting. I would say that. Uh, CIIS has a psychedelic psychotherapy certification program. Um, there's another university that is uh, uh, that I heard rumor is developing a similar kind of a program. Um, MAPS may develop their own uh, training and certification program. When I first, you know, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not like a prior generation uh, removed from what's going on now, but even 2010, when I kind of started plugging in and figuring out what was going on, there was there was like two studies in America. So if you could get into those two academic institutions and get on those two research teams, that was it. And it's pretty it's pretty exciting that right now I would say somebody who's beginning a training program or about to graduate, like this is there are opportunities. Uh, you know there are now over a dozen sites in, uh, that are doing active research. Um, expanded access, which is something we can talk about, is uh, likely gonna lead to a demand for just those therapists, you know? Like, um, so it's pretty incredible. I think we're, we're getting to that time and the details are far from figured out, but it's a, it's a career path you can take that, to uh, family that. gatherings and actually so say cool. around the dinner table. <laughs> that is so cool. There's this stat, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, but the Department of Labor says that 60% of all children in elementary school today will work in a job that has yet to exist. 60%. Here we go. A job that it's yes. not <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so, I recommend it. So for anybody who has kids, Raise them to be a psychedelic, psychonautic therapist, right? Yes, for sure. So, this is turning the tables a little bit because, you know, I, I'm involved with MAPS. I know you guys are and all the work that, that we're doing and the, these podcasts and the work that we're talking about. The cognitive liberty discussion, which is still a, a very, very important thread worth discussing. I mean, all the science, all the research is very, very necessary, and, and it's my belief will only help the cognitive liberty discussion because it can get rid of the hysteria 
around the effects that psychedelics have, and that will affect policy, which will then affect legality and so on and so forth. But are there any fears, or how, how, do, how do we address it? How do we address the fears about MDMA or ketamine or any psychoactive compound, but let's just say MDMA, about the possibility of it being controlled by big pharma. The only access to MDMA has to be, you know, through this pathway. Or is that a reasonable fear? Is it not? How do the two worlds meet between recreational and therapeutic? Yeah. So I have a friend once coined the term recro-spiritual. Recreational and spiritual. And uh, I think she's feeling it right over there. (laughs) And um, I don't want to get too caught on that tangent, but it's that even in our therapy sessions, sometimes people think, well, I can't have fun because I'm here to do trauma therapy. And (laughs) a lot of the sessions are not a ton of fun um, doing trauma work, but there are definitely moments where there's dancing and laughter and joy and feeling safe in one's body. Um, So getting back to your question about pharmaceutical, I I love this story to think Rick Doblin founded MAPS in 1986, um, the year before I was born. (laughs) And he met Michael Mithoffer, a psychiatrist in Charleston, South Carolina, maybe a decade or more after that. And Michael, MDMA had recently been put into a Schedule One drug and people who had been using it before it became illegal were kind of in this gray area doing therapy with it in the early 80s. And Michael was really tempted to leave the country. He said, I, I used to work with MDMA. It was so effective. Now it's illegal. I can't do something illegal. But I also don't really feel good working with my patients knowing that MDMA would be really good for them, but I can't give it to them. So he was like, I'm going to go to some other country. Maybe I'll go to somewhere it's decriminalized. And he met Rick Doblin, and Rick said, no, don't go to another country. Stay here, because how will people ever afford to fly out of the country and go get these treatments? There's so many people in need here. And, you know, fast forward a couple of decades. Yeah. Three decades. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So because MDMA is off patent, it's in the legal realm, it's not... A, a newly created uh, yeah. chemical. Right. It's not interesting to pharmaceutical companies. It's not going to be a big money maker for no, anybody. N- nobody can own the patent. So, and MAPS, um, after doing all of this research, if MDMA assisted psychotherapy is approved, an organization who gets a drug to approval, even if it's off patent, gets a five year data exclusivity, meaning because we produced all of the research that promotes the data then we are the only ones that can um, sell MDMA and we will sell it to um, competent and trained psychiatrists and psychotherapists and it's still not going to be a big money maker. Right, right. right. But Cole, I'm, I'm going to hear a little bit from you about this. Like, yeah. how does this work affect, um, how do you think it affects the recreational use? Um... I don't know how it's going to ultimately affect the recreational use. You know, I think hopefully it will, um, for people who, you know, I think that there's a there's a place for recreation in general. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's also, and I think most people who have had recreational experiences or are part of a community where these things are used recreationally probably know some people who are using them 
recreationally, but could probably be better using them therapeutically. Sure. Um, yeah. And so to me, it's like, I don't know that it's, I don't think it's a threat to the world of recreation that it will also now be a, uh, a therapeutic thing that's taken very seriously and uh, a lot of time and effort and research and, uh, and ethical considerations are put into finding how to best support and best utilize right. the tool yeah. in a therapeutic way. Yeah. Um, I think, if anything, it might, uh, it might draw a lot of people who are using it recreationally uh, and know that they need something more than a recreational experience. I think it, it, could, it, it opens a door for those people who are trying to treat their trauma or their depression sure. with recreational use and uh, are, are surprised to learn that they're having a bad time at a base nectar show, at, you know, <laughs> too much LSD or MDMA or something like that. Yeah, well, doing LSD at a base nectar show is pretty intense anyway. But I mean, still, the, one of the goals that we're trying to get to is to have our behavior as cosmic psychonauts and explorers and adventurers and seekers, like this shouldn't be illegal, right? What we're doing shouldn't be illegal. So I'm, I mean, I am, and I mean, that's always been a problem within any kind of psychedelic or alternative community is the illegality of it. So what I'm trying to get at and what I, I can see happening, and we've kind of seen it with cannabis a little bit, but all of this great research that you're doing, it'll help ease the hysteria around, like, you know, if you talk to, you know, the, the generation gap is so important. Many, many older people who don't understand psychedelics, right? Their number one thing around psychedelics, or any drugs really, but let's just say psychedelics, it's always the kids. Oh my God, what about the kids? You know, what are they gonna do? Are they gonna jump off of a building? Are they gonna, you know, overdose on MDMA at Burning Man or something like that? They always get freaked out about the kids. Right. So now that we have data yeah. that can inform the discussion, yeah. kind of get rid of the hysteria, yeah. and I think hopefully it can affect policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, uh, and I think that not only um, people who are suffering from a specific, uh, you know, identifiable cluster of symptoms that has a name in the, you know, diagnostic and statistical manual. I think not only those people would benefit from from having, you know, a transformative or a profound uh, experience of connectedness. I think. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that, you know, not just people who have broken legs would, you know, benefit from going to a physical therapist and doing exercise, you know, like, I think that, um, that that is a possible way in the future. And I think that there's a precedent in positive psychology of working with positive states, not just, not just because psychology was came in through the medical model, psychology itself is disease-oriented. But uh, once disease is relieved, there has been little attention paid to like maximizing the experience to the flourishing. Uh, in the 80s, this field of positive psychology started, and they do look at that sort of other, whole other broad uh, experience of uh, the, the human experience. And I think 
that these tools will also be profoundly um, useful in further exploration of that, like positive psychology or positive psychiatry at some point in the future. And I do, I do though still think that, you know, if culturally, you know, science is, we still would want to do it safely. We would still want to be studying it. We'd still want to be making sure that we are doing it correctly and uh, always improving on what methods work, what methods don't work. And the scientific method is the Western paradigm, like the, the, the paradigm of science is that method in Western culture at least. So I think it likely will go through this medical model, but yeah. we can start to incorporate positive psycholo- psychology, positive psychiatry to start exploring, exploring once, you know, if, you know, if my dreams come true, everybody, you know, heals their wounds and then we can also move on to, you know, what's beyond just not being so crippled that you can't go to work, you know? Sure. Yep. Yeah, just briefly changing the system from within it, and I think you changing know the system from within. Yeah, yeah. and you know m- more than most about um, in the '70s, just trying to attack the system and trying to tear everything down. And yeah. I used to be an anarchist, so there's a part of me that loves that, but sure. it's it's not so effective with the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I. I I agree with that for sure. Um, I mean, back then, though, I mean, the generational gap was so huge, you know. And, you know, one of the great lines about the 60s is in order to understand the 60s, you must understand the 50s, you know. And it's not the same today. In order to stand 2000 and the 21st century, like, the the aughts were, you know, the dichotomy is not as severe as, as it once was. So fixing the system within, yeah. I mean, I think the the greatest, you know, you know, the greatest feather in, in the psychedelic cap that could happen would be for a United States senator or someone or you know someone of that level of mainstream, you know, political influence to come out and say, oh yeah, you know, just like what Steve Jobs did about LSD, you know. I mean, that, that that's fantastic. So we talked about the phase three MDMA clinical trials. What else though? I kind of want to talk about some, some other things as we kind of wrap up this, this podcast. There are so many things going on in the world of psychedelic research right now. Ketamine, I know Cole, you know so much about that, but Shannon and just end of life anxiety, all of it. What's the most, um, for, for each of you, what, what do you feel is the most promising that you see is the most some sort of promising yellow brick road, I guess? Well, I have to keep myself from being too anxious about the future and ambitious. Um, What, I mean, even just working on the studies now and being able to be there in the session with somebody having an MDMA experience, it's just amazing um, how rewarding and effective it is. But if I allow myself to look forward, um, I'm really excited about the potential for MAPS to study Ibogaine for opiate addiction. Ibogaine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and for anybody, uh, I figure if you're probably here at this event, you probably know a lot about what that work is, but if you perhaps have an opiate 
dependence or you know somebody who has an opioid dependence, please see, look online for the work you know, about Ibogaine treatment and the centers in Mexico that, that are doing it. And hopefully we can bring that work to America. It's really, 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 really important. Yeah, um, and it's all, it's all very, very exciting to me. I think uh, for me, MDMA is the one that I would really like to work with and I, that I think has uh, a, lo a really profound potential. I think it's um, an, an easier, I think the, the like psilocybin and some of the other uh, classic hallucinogens, yeah. classic psychedelics uh, can be so profoundly different and you know I think I think MDMA um, what it does in uh, making people's people feel connected people feeling uh, a spiritual connection a heart opening um, you know I think that that has such broad applicability in uh, so many realms um, I'm really excited about ketamine's potential, but um, but honestly, yeah, I think MDMA is, uh, but, you know, seeing what else MDMA can do. If PTSD uh, became the target um, kind of randomly, like, yeah, right. uh, MDMA was chosen somewhat at random and PTSD was chosen somewhat at random and it worked. Uh, so I think, uh, I'd like to see what else it can do. Well, you talked about that heart opening, that spiritual awakening that I know everybody in this room here on stage, at some point or another, we've had that experience ourselves. That life-changing, heart-opening, psycho-spiritual revelation that altered our very incarnation, right? So that's been going on since the dawn of man, right? Every indigenous culture, with the exception of the Eskimos, because it was too cold to grow anything, you know, didn't have psychedelics, but every indigenous culture on the planet, as far as we know, had some kind of psychoactive, not just psychoactive, but also community-based psychoactive activity going on within the tribe. They wouldn't just take it and run off into the mountains by themselves, and then you'd sit around the campfire, you'd talk about it. Maybe you'd do it as a group. You'd gather around the fire. You, your tribe would get together and kind of go to these places as a tribe, as a culture. So mysticism, bringing mysticism back into our culture, and it, it's sort of, for me, it's kind of a little ironic that mysticism is kind of being brought back to the culture under the umbrella of psychotherapy. <laughs> but, but it is. I mean, part of this is mystical work and is sort of finding the way to get our tribe back to its mystical nature, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, psychology, you know, like clinical psychology has been pretty mystical, you know, depending on exactly what you're looking into, but like Jungian sure. and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, there's there are a lot of overlaps in modern application of clinical psychology and, you know, Buddhist, you know, tenants, core tenants of Buddhism are like all sort of uh, a, a lot, there's a lot of overlap in what a Buddhist would recommend and a psycho, psychotherapist would recommend. Yeah, um, sure. And, and you know, maybe that's uh, kind of a fallout of um, you know, like the Industrial Revolution, um, the like 
the downfall of organized religion um, and growth of atheism and uh, not that that's a bad thing or a wrong thing, but like maybe one of the unintended consequences of that is that it's led to a strict intellectualism and materialism sort of cultural mind frame. Yeah. And, uh, and you can have spirit, you can have connection to your heart and experiences uh, without that religious framework, but it's a, it's a uncharted territory. You know, it's it's not. It's a new. It's it's an evolving. You it's know, an evolving system. territory. But as our great departed friend Terence McKenna says, it's it's not even uncharted territory. It is the archaic revival. It is hard coded into us somewhere deep down inside within the inner workings of the human brain, of human potential, of our psyche and our spirit, there is a need to pierce the veil, right? I think everybody agrees with that. Um, <laughs> um, so speaking of, whoa, piercing the veil, are we gonna take questions? Are we doing? I just got a five minute sign. Oh, we did? Oh, okay, we just got a five minute sign, but let's just take, um, how about two questions? Does anybody have a question? Her first, okay. Here, use the mic. So, um, as, as the person who's throwing this event, and thank you so much for being part of it, I, I'd like to know, I know that you're sitting here, and, and some would probably be sitting here thinking you're enduring, all of the people who are, you know, partying in the back, because this is something that, I, this was my, my brainchild, was that we would be breaking down the barriers between these two different paradigms, between the party and the doctors, between, you know, all of these different things. And it's, it's loud as all get out back there, isn't it? Like, let's just acknowledge how loud it is back there. Okay, right. but can we be okay with it? We're fine, we're good. I, I, okay, yeah. so that's, I wanna, I wanna thank you guys for being okay with that. Like, All good. I wanna thank everyone for being okay with that. And like, I wanna ask you, my biggest question is, how have you become okay with everything? How have you gotten to the place where none of that bothers you at all? and you're able to just hold this talk and your camera guy is just, you know, zooming in comfortably and you're getting closer to the mic comfortably because I'm watching it and I'm, I'm the one who threw it going, hey, shut up, dicks, <laughs> you know? So I like, I like that. That's a good question. I like that you used the word <laughs> okay because we were just using that in a recent MDMA session, which is that the MDMA can help us at least feel okay. And that is sometimes a really big order to just feel okay in this world. What about getting Zendo into uh, emergency rooms across the US? Question. Whoa. Uh. So I 
might be starting a rumor, but I believe the director of the Zendo and our dear friend Sarah Gale um, has done a training with, well, I know she's done a training with emergency room staff, and I think more and more emergency room staff are, are asking for and are open to training because they do see psychedelic uh, psychedelic use. I was just talking to somebody in Chicago, and I said, she works at an emergency room, and I said, how is it around Lollapalooza? And she said, oh, there's so many festivals, and yeah, we get a mad rush of people. And she That's has awesome. training with psychedelics, but not everybody does, yeah. That's awesome. I'd also like to say, which I think is amazing, uh, is that one of the stated goals of Zendo is that uh, it trains itself out of existence. That <laughs> like, uh, we eventually won't need them in the emergency rooms because, as a community who is, you know, as a thoughtful, insightful, rowdy but uh, uh, also uh, present um, group of people, uh, we we will train each other in these techniques. We will take care of each other. We will exchange uh, methods. And, um, and tools and tricks of the trade and ways to avoid you know, too much disaster happening in the first place uh, so that we won't even need the emergency room. So Zendo's awesome for a million reasons and that's one of them. And maybe we can leave you with the, or one of the things that I can leave with is uh, close the four principles of psychedelic harm reduction. Safely sitting through difficulty, which is, Creating a safe space, sitting, not guiding, talking through, not down, and difficult is not the same as bad. Awesome. And just to, to close this out, you know, I sort of going into these things, you never know where the, the panel is going to go or the conversation is going to go, but what I got out of this is change the conversation. It's up to every one of us to change the conversation out there. That's what an effective community can do around safe, ethical, useful, and fucking amazing psychedelic work. Change the conversation out in the world. So, Cole Marta, Shannon Carlin, I'm Zach Leary. This is the MAPS Podcast. Thank you.